Good morning to all of you. There we go. I can hear the difference. As Nathan said, uh, my name is Joe Paglia, and it is, it is good to be here this morning. Um, Amy and I, my wife Amy and I, have been, I, I consider us cousins. We're those distant cousins that you don't really see often, but are still a part of the family. That's how we feel with Missio Day, because this is actually the first time we've worshipped here. But we have known about Missio Day before Missio Day ever came into existence. We were praying with Paul and Laura um, about this church plan opportunity, about birthing a church out of peace in Frankfurt. And uh, we get the email blasts. We, we keep up to date. And yet we've never actually been here in three years. And so shame on us for being that kind of black ball cousin, black sheep cousin out in Nowersville. Um, but it is good to be here this morning to worship with you. So thank you for the invitation, and, and uh, we appreciate that greatly. This morning we are going to be looking, continuing to look at the Sermon on the Mount. I believe Pastor Paul has has uh, been talking about that. City on a Hill is, is the little title he gave me. That's not the actual title I gave my sermon. Um, but that's all right. We'll work it out. And so I, I, let me just invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read 13 through 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's take a moment to pray, and then we will dig into our text. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning seeking more of you. Father, your word is your revelation of yourself. So, Father God, we pray that by your grace and through your Spirit at work in this place and in our hearts and in our minds, that you would take our focus off of ourselves. That we would stop thinking about ourselves and that we would begin to really think about you. That we would desire to see more of you, to know you more, to love you more. And by doing so, O Lord, that we would be transformed, that we would be blessed. But blessed because we have more of you and less of ourselves. Father God, make this so. In your name we pray. Amen. One of my professors, D.A. Carson, and maybe you've heard that name. I know Paul reads him and 
But D.A. Carson used to say in his class, a text without a context is nothing more than a pretext for a proof text. He's a very clever Brit. A text without a context is nothing but a pretext for a proof text. What that means is that, is this, is that if you take a text of Scripture out of its context, all it becomes is a pretext to making it say what you want it to say. Right? In other words, context is critical for how we understand Scripture as it's meant to be understood how we understand what God is saying to us. In that way, you can think of of context as an anchor and a chain. If if the meaning of our text, if if the truth of our text does not stay anchored in that context, then the meaning will begin to bob and sway in the wind. Eventually, it'll simply be washed away in the waves of the world we will be able to make Scripture say whatever we want it to say. And so context is critical. For example, the four verses that I just read this morning, we can make those say a bunch of different things if we pluck those four verses out of the context in the Sermon on the Mount, if we pluck them out of the larger context of Matthew. Let me give you an example. We're talking about salt and light. Here's something that you might hear, I don't know, let's say, theoretically, of course, on Oprah. We need to be salt. Well, salt is kind of flavorful. And so we need to seek out the flavorful things of life. You just need to seek the most savory, salty things. In a similar way, we are to be light, right? And so we need to seek enlightenment from wherever it comes. Wherever we think there is a spark of light, we need to seek that out. And that is, by the way, Oprah's motto. She will look for light anywhere it is. Now, it doesn't have to be true light. It can be just the appearance of light. It can be a glimmer shining from somewhere. But that's how we make that text speak. If, and that's just me sitting here thinking about how we talk about that. You can make salt and light become a metaphor for anything. But salt and light are metaphors that are anchored in the Sermon on the Mount and in the larger context of Scripture. And therefore, we need to understand the context that we find them in if we're even going to begin to understand what God really is talking about when He says that we are salt and light. That way, let's... Let's look at this a little closer. But to do that, I I want us to back up into chapter 4. So if you still have your Bibles open, I hope you do, go back to chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 11 and following. Now at this point in the text, Matthew tells us how Jesus has returned from his 40 days in the wilderness in which he overcame the temptations of the devil. He returns to Galilee, having heard that John the Baptist has been arrested and imprisoned by Herod. Now, for those of you who don't know and may not remember, Herod had John the Baptist removed, or or I should say arrested and imprisoned, because John spoke out against Herod 
when he killed his brother in order to get his brother's wife. Herod was a class act. And so, so John the Baptist speaks out against Herod, and Herod says, that's it, I'm tired of you talking bad against me. She's really attractive, and I wanted her. So I'm going to take her. And so he throws him in prison, and later he has John executed. But this is the context in which Jesus then returns from his wilderness. Why is this important? Well, this is important because John the Baptist was sent by God to be the forerunner of Jesus the Christ. John the Baptist was there to prepare the way, to prepare the people to hear and receive the Messiah. That's why he was out in the wilderness preaching, repent, repent. He was trying to get them to see that they were sinners in need of a Savior. But now John, the forerunner to Christ, has been removed, and here comes Christ on the scene. So Christ returns from his temptations in the wilderness and returns to Galilee. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Now his ministry begins because John has finished. So he begins to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this this verse, verse 17, I think is utterly critical to understanding the entire Sermon on the Mount, and in fact, most of of Jesus' ministry. Because this lays the groundwork. This is the first thing that he begins to preach to the people when his ministry begins. In In that sense, it sets the entire tone and tenor for the next three years. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, the people of Israel were expecting a kingdom. And they were expecting a king. But their idea of the king and the kingdom was radically different from that of what God was about to do in Christ. They were expecting a a king who would come and lead a revolt to overthrow Rome, their oppressors. And once again, the nation of Israel would be lifted up on high and they would be glorious in the eyes of the world. All, of course, so that God would be glorified. They always tacked that on so it sounded good. But the reality is is they thought that they would once again be a superpower, politically, economically. And so when Jesus comes preaching about a king and a kingdom, it grabs their ears, and yet he preaches radically different than what they're expecting. And so he is trying to get them to see that God's plan is different. Jesus comes not as this conquering king as they expected, but instead he comes as a suffering servant. To use phraseology from Isaiah. He was king, make no mistake about it. He was king, and one day he certainly would rule over all things, but not in the way that the Jews had anticipated. Thus he comes preaching and teaching among the Jews of Galilee about the coming of the kingdom of heaven and does so that he might restore God's vision among the people. God's vision of the messianic king rather than the false image that they had been holding on to for so long. We move forward in the text and we're given a glimpse 
of Christ's authority as king. Now, often we don't see this this way, but I think it's there when we really look and see 17 as that key verse. In 18 through 22, what happens? You can probably see it right in the little subheading of your, of your Bible. What does Jesus do? He calls out to disciples. Remember, he's walking along the, the shore and he sees Simon and Andrew and James and John, right? Well, what does he do? He literally calls, right? Come, follow me. What do they do? What do those guys do? What do those four guys who are out in their fishing boats do? Speak a little loud. They follow. They drop their nets. They just drop what they're doing. They jump out of the boat and they follow. Friends, if I'm walking along the shore and I call out to guys in the boat and say, hey, come follow me, they're going to think I am nuts. But yet we see this glimpse of authority in Jesus. He calls out and they obey. We're getting this glimpse of his kingly authority. But we don't often look at it this way because we miss some of the context. Then we come out, then we go on to verse 23. We read this, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, that is the good news, of the kingdom, so his message stays the same, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus continues to to proclaim, to preach and teach the good news of the kingdom, same as before, But now he begins to pair this teaching and preaching with demonstrations of power. So he preaches that the kingdom of God is here. He demonstrates that he has authority so that when he speaks and calls his disciples, they obey and follow. And now he begins to heal. Anything that they were afflicted with, he heals them from. We're seeing a kingdom in action. We are seeing kingly rule, but in a radically different way. Now, him healing people was not going to overthrow the Romans. But he is giving them a glimpse into the nature of the kingdom of heaven, into the nature of the spiritual kingdom over which he rules and reigns. And this was radically different than anything they expected. He was no ordinary king, and his kingdom was no ordinary land. Rather, he is a divine ruler, possessing divine authority. And he rules over a spiritual kingdom. And he does so in the hearts, minds, souls, and lives of his subjects, of his followers. In this sense, when we talk about Christ as a king and we talk about Christ and his kingdom, we're talking about the reign and the rule of Christ in us and over us. That's what we're talking about. That is then the context for the Sermon on the Mount. We're not quite there yet, though. All of this, of course, attracts attention, and rightly so. His fame spreads widely throughout the region, verse 24 tells us. 
And then from verse 25, we see that great crowds of people begin to follow after him. Of course, they want to hear more of what he's saying, and they want to see more of what he's doing. It's at this point, then, we come to the immediate setting and context of the Sermon on the Mount. The crowds have begun to follow, and Christ sees the crowds, and he takes the opportunity to teach more. And so what happens is, now this, were, this was before the days of microphones and speakers and all of that kind of stuff, and so he needs to find a place where he can speak to a crowd in such a way that they can actually hear him. So he's looking for what, what you might call a natural amphitheater, which is basically like a hill that's kind of rounded. He finds one on the Sea of Galilee. And what he does is he and his disciples, the text tells us, climb up the hill. He goes up maybe maybe a third of the way from the bottom, and, and everyone else begins to fill in up the hill from him. Because as he speaks them, his voice will travel up that hill. And they'll be able to hear what he's teaching, and of course then they'll be able to see if he does any of these miraculous things that he's been doing. He takes the position of a, a traditional teacher and rabbi. He sits. I stood to teach. He sat to teach. His disciples sit near to him, and then everyone fills in, just anxiously anticipating the next thing that he is going to say and or do. So this is the picture that we keep in mind when we think of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a beautiful body of water. It's right behind him. I would have been totally distracted, but it would have been gorgeous. And so here they're sitting in the midst of the grass on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee hearing the Son of God, this, this, this King who has come with incredible power and authority begin to preach. And he does so this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is a long section of teaching. It's one of the longest that we have recorded in the Gospels. And Jesus covers a great deal of ground. He, he, he touches on many subjects and situations within it. And yet this sermon, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, are one unit. They're one sermon. And even though they have all these different parts, they are united together by one theme, and that is this kingdom theme. That's why it's so important for us to see this context coming out of chapter 4 and now into 5 and ultimately 6 and 7. And the whole point that he's making here is that I am the king, Jesus speaking now, that Jesus is the king, that he is establishing his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is at hand in him, and he is extending his reign and his rule in the hearts, minds, and lives of, of believers. He is gathering to him subjects, loving and loyal subjects, who because they are following him as king and are now part of his kingdom, must live their lives in a way that is radically different from the kingdoms of this world. That is the message of the Sermon on the Mount. 
if you are going to be one of my subjects, you must live in my way. You must live with, with me as your king, not yourself. And thus you must live in a way that pleases me, not the world. We see this immediately with the Beatitudes, which Pastor Paul has covered. When you think about those, those Beatitudes, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, does that sound at all like the ways of the world? No, a thousand times no. You never see any of our politicians standing up and saying, you know, we as a nation really need to be meek. I didn't see that in the State of the Union this week. I didn't hear that we should be persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are radically different ways of living. This is a radically different heart and mind, and as a result, life. And it's because this is the type of life lived by those with Christ as their king. All right, we have spent so much time on context. Now we need to actually dig into our own text. Let me summarize the truth, then, of the passage that we're looking at. 13 through 16, this idea of being salt and light. Here's my, the main thesis, if you will, the central truth. And you'll notice how I bring this context in. In seeking to be loving and loyal subjects of Christ our King. In seeking to be loving and loyal subjects of Christ our King, we are and must live as salt and light for the glory of God in this world. We are and we must live as salt and light for the glory of God in this world as we seek to be loving and loyal subjects of Christ our King. Now, I'm going to break this down into five parts for you so we can try to wrestle with these. And we're going to whip through them. Well, the last three are really short. The first two are a little longer. But point number one, we are both salt and light because of who we are in Christ. We are both salt and light. Look at the text. He says, we are, you are, he says, but we are salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Notice, he doesn't say, you can be the salt of the earth or light of the world. You are becoming the salt of the earth, the light of the world. He says, you are the salt and light of the world. He's declaring here an ontological reality. Now, that ontological word is a really big word, and it's a fun word. It simply means to be, to exist as. He's describing who we are in Him. Not that we are this in and of ourselves, without Christ. He's saying, if you are one of my subjects, if I am in you and you are in me, some John 15 language there, you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And don't you forget it. This is a kingdom 
reality. So before we even talk about what this means and how we live that out, we have to come to grips with, we must recognize the reality of who and what we are in Him. It makes sense, doesn't it? Before we know what it means to live as soft and light, we have to recognize and internalize the reality that this is who we are because of who He is. Now, both of these metaphors, salt and light, would have been fairly fairly uh, familiar to the first century Jewish hearers that Jesus was speaking to because they both hold Old Testament significance. In the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, salt plays a major part in the Old Testament sacrificial system. When you were making a sacrifice, you were often told uh, to, to add salt to that sacrifice to season it, to make it more savory. Now, now we don't do this because God was literally coming down and eating the sacrifice. But what it was is it was symbolic of heartfelt worship of God. You weren't offering something blandly, something tasteless. You were offering something that was savory and delicious. And wonderful. You were offering something that was seasoned. This is the idea that, that was behind salt. Because salt has a key role in our lives. This idea then is that, is that they, as they are offering worship to God, they are offering themselves as salt. You are the salt. I use salt in my Old Testament sacrifices. I'm now part of that worship. My life is now part of that sacrifice, which immediately should draw our mind forward to Romans chapter 12. I urge you, brother, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your act of spirit. This is your spiritual act of worship. We are living sacrifices. We are living, breathing acts of worship. And as salt, this is begins to give us a glimpse of what it means that we are salty because of Christ. We are salted with Christ. We are seasoned with Him. And we throw ourselves upon the altar for God's glory. What shall we say then about light? Well, let's go back to the very beginning. When God creates, He talks about how He speaks and He creates light. And it dispels the darkness. It separates that which was dark from light. Well, this becomes a metaphor that that runs throughout the Old Testament. All that which is dark is that which is wicked and evil and sinful. That which is ungodly and unrighteous. Well, that which is light is beautiful and glorifying to God and righteous and holy. And you get the idea, right? Well, think now then, fast forward to the book of Exodus. God leads His people out. They're wandering in the wilderness. Well, His presence was there with them. How did they see it? 
during the day there was a pillar of cloud. I see you whispering it. There was a pillar of cloud which would have reflected the beautiful desert sunlight. It would have gleamed and shined. And at night there was a pillar of fire. It lit their way. The light of God was always before the people. What does Jesus himself declare in John chapter 8? I am the... I am the... Light of the world. I'm the light of the world. And now Christ is saying that you are the light. In the same way that Christ is the light to the world, in the same Christ that God made the pillar of fire and cloud light as symbolic or or shining to show them His presence among them, So Jesus was the light of God among the people. So now we have that light within us. Paul writing to the Ephesians. And now this, when you read through the book of Ephesians, this letter, Paul is, there's that phrase, in Christ. And it is repeated over and over and over because he wants them to understand who they are in Christ and how radically being in Christ transforms them. He writes this. Um, At one time, you were darkness. This is right from chapter 2. At one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is who we are because of who we are in Christ. Because we are His disciples, because we are His loving and loyal subjects, because we are Christians, who we are rests in the transforming work of Jesus Christ. And it's here then in verse 13 and 14 that Paul says, this is who you, that Jesus says, this is who you are in me. You are salt. And you are light. That's point number one. Point number two. Because we are who we are in Christ, it demands we live as both salt and light. This makes sense. If this is who we are, then this is who, how we should live. We get confused on this. We think, well, this is who we are, and that's wonderful, and this is how I'm going to live because this is what I want to do. Okay, we'll take a little bit of this stuff in here, but... This is how I'm going to live. That's why, to be honest, we are so open to the charges of hypocrisy. Because we often, how often in our lives do we struggle with what we say over here and what we do over here? It's the reality of our struggle. In some sense, we should all recognize, I am a hypocrite. God, help me. But some of us excel in our hypocrisy much better. And we have to grapple with that. If this is who we are in Christ, then we must be seeking to live out the reality of who we are in Him. So let's go back to this idea of salt as a seasoning. Whenever salt is added to something, it is absorbed into the item. You salt your meat, you salt your french fries, it's absorbed in. I salt my french fries. 
by being absorbed the salt and seasons and flavors and, and in essence it changes the food that it was added to. That which was bland has now become savory. And so if we are the salt because of Christ and thus we are the salt of Christ, then we are to infuse the flavor. We are to infuse the seasoning and the savoriness of Jesus Christ into everything and everyone with whom we come into contact. If we are salt, we should be seeking to be absorbed into the lives of others. And ultimately, having Christ then absorbed into their lives. Again, from the Apostle Paul, this time Colossians 4. Now, now verse 5 of Colossians 4 again provides us missional context. He writes, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. So he's got us thinking about what it means to walk with outsiders, non-believers, unchristians, unchristians, non-Christians. Then we come to verse five or verse six, and he says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer. Each person. May our speech always be seasoned with the savoriness of Christ. Now, this does not mean that any time you are talking with a non believer, that you have to mention Jesus Christ by name. Like, as if you're agitated until you do. Right, how do I get Jesus' name in this conversation? We're talking about car parts. How do I. T- Jesus is the master mechanic. No, no, don't do that. The point is, is that we, if we are salt, we should be so salty with Him, so seasoned with Him, that that just having conversations, they should be able to begin to taste Him, even if we don't mention Him by name. Whether it's His values, whether it's His teachings, whether it's His passion or compassion. They should be able to taste Him. In that sense, when we walk away from Him, Christ should be that aftertaste upon their spiritual tongue. They have tasted Him. They have ingested a bit of Him. And it's lingering in their mouth. And friends, it shouldn't be bitter. It should leave them wanting more. It should give them that dry mouth in a sense where they just want more of it. This is who we are to be as salt. Let's think about light now. Now, Christ blows this light illustration much bigger than the salty ones because he gives us two illustrations. And and this is where Paul is talking about city on a hill because Christ uses the city on a hill as well as a lamp on a stand to, to, to add more bigness, roundness, wholeness to this idea, to emphasize it more. You are the light of the world, he says. And he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now this would immediately draw people to the idea of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was God's city. It was the city of God's people. 
and Jerusalem was literally built on a hill. And as a result, in the night sky, Jerusalem, with all of its torches and lights and all of the things, could be seen for miles. Because the light of Jerusalem, the light of God's city, in this sense, the light of God's people, shone throughout the countryside, and people could see it from wherever they are. It drove the darkness away, and they could see Jerusalem. And if you were traveling, you could find your way because you could see its light as it sat up on that hill. Well, Jerusalem was a physical city on a hill. It was also supposed to be a spiritual city on the hill. The people of Jerusalem were supposed to be so living for the glory of God and so filled with His light that they shone brightly in a dark and dreary world. They were supposed to be able to be seen And ultimately, that God would be seen in them and through them by those who didn't know Him before. This is what Christ is saying, that that God's glory is supposed to be shining brightly from you. Because it's in you, because of who you are in Christ, and so it must shine through you. The light of God expelling the darkness of the sin within the souls of men. And thus ultimately leading them to faith in Him. The same is true of a lamp, right? You don't light a lamp and then stick it under a basket. Now we put shades on them to kind of direct the light. But, but if you had a house and you had one lamp, like most of these folks did, that were listening at this point, you didn't put a shade on it. We put shades on them and that's because we have like 18 lamps in every room. But they had one lamp. And so they would light it and it would be up on a stand in their house so that they could maximize the light that came from it. Friends, are we up on a stand or do we live our lives down low? Do we live our lives hidden under a basket so that no one can see Christ in us? The question is, is are we living boldly for Christ or timidly? Do we try to hide our faith so that no one else sees Because it's hard to talk about or it's hard to deal with or because we're different than the darkness that surrounds us. Christ is saying we must be as that light on the stand. We must desire to see, to have others see Christ in us and through us. And we must live our lives in such a way that they can and they do. Because we are salt and because we are light in Christ, we must live so that others may taste and see Him through us. This is what it means to be salt and to be light. Our three last points. And these are very quick, like I said. Third point. Failure to function as salt and light brings consequences. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because Christ doesn't expand very much on this. But look at the text. Christ speaks in verse 13 of salt that has lost its saltiness. What is it good for? Nothing except to be thrown out and trampled. 
Those are some strong words. In a similar way, we could then ask, what good would it be for a lamp to be lit and then placed under a basket? Nothing. It's just wasting fuel. You're just burning oil worthlessly. The point here is is that if we are not seeking to live out the reality of who we are and how Christ has called us to live, we are simply in disobedience. And we're facing discipline. Here's the caution I give you. This text is a discipleship text. Because Christ is talking about who you are in Christ, who we are in Christ, this is not talking about losing salvation. This is not a a salvific text. So don't think here that I'm saying that if you don't start living your life as salt and light right now, God is going to kick you out and onto the curb and trample you under His feet. That's not what I'm telling you. But, if you read Hebrews chapter 12, there is something that we refer to as divine discipline. Like a father who disciplines his children, so God disciplines those he loves. I'm not sure if that's the exact verse, but that's the Paglia paraphrase of that verse. We are facing discipline in our lives from God's hand as our Father if we choose to simply disobey this command, disobey this commission. We don't think about that very often, but that is the reality. If we continue to pray for blessing and yet expect God to bless us when we don't do anything for Him, think again. Now, often God does because He's gracious, but but friends, we miss out on a lot of God's blessings. Because instead, we're facing discipline. There are consequences to not living as salt and light. Therefore, in order to avoid God's divine discipline, and in, as loyal and loving subjects to please our King, we should be seeking to live as salt and light with the hope of being blessed as a result. Christ includes this aspect of discipline in here because I think it's important. And so let's not, let's not miss it. That's verse three, or number three. Number four then. In seeking to live our lives as salt and light in this world, we must do so with a global perspective. Now this is, this is near and dear to my heart. Um, Nathan didn't share this, but, but just less than a year ago, six, seven, eight months ago almost now, um, Amy and I made a major transition in our lives. I'm no longer pastoring a church. We're now involved in missions. I work with a group called Leadership Resources International, based right in Palos Heights. And what we do is we train national pastors. We go in and train pastors all over the world who've never had access to resources to be trained, to how to, pre- how to study, how to preach, how to teach the Word. I work in the Africa group. So I travel to Africa several times a year, and I'm I'm training pastors. Friends, I cannot tell you the blessing of having traveled to Africa now wow, five times, I think. I have three trip, three more trips scheduled this year at this point. To see what God is doing on a global scale is astounding. It is so easy for us to be locked into our small spheres of life. Right here in 
comfortable southwest suburbs of Chicago. It's a nice life we have here. And so we, we tend to live in these small bubbles. And yet that is not at all what Christ calls us to. Think about these words. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the... Uh, give that one to me a little more. All right. You are the light of the... Woo! <laughs> you do have voices. Light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. That is not a small commission. This is a huge charge. And so we need to be global Christians. That's a term that Ralph Winter, who is a wonderful missiologist, actually just passed away last year, went on to glory. He has done more for missions in the 20th century than any other man probably. And he was coining this term, global Christians. John Stott has also picked it up and uses it. The idea that we are not Christians just here in Mokina or in Frankfurt or New Lenox or wherever it is that you live. But we are, we are based here, but we have fingers that are reaching to the ends of the globe in whatever way we can. Now, I know that you support this couple in Jos, Nigeria, right? I think we've actually met them. Amy and I think we met them on one of our trips uh, in Africa. That is a wonderful start. But how are you going to impact the world and the earth? Yes, by supporting missionaries. Wonderful. Praying for your missionaries. Yes, wonderful. That's all part of it. By sending more missionaries out. Yes. But the books you read, the web pages you look at, how you integrate a global perspective will radically change how you do mission right here locally. When you have a global perspective on what God is doing for His glory around the world, it will change how you do mission right here in this elementary school. It's a radical thing, and I've seen it happen. The more and more we have eyes to see God's global work, the more and more we have eyes to see the peoples of the world right here in our own neighborhood. Those refugees that have fled and are looking for new homes. And America is the largest uh, refugee camp in the world. They're all over the place. You can serve the nation and serve the earth by serving refugees. You can, you can adopt a people group as a church. You can adopt a project through LRI, through Leadership Resources, if you want to. You can, in your own home, be praying for an unreached people group. There are incredible amounts of ways that you can do this, and I won't go on any longer on this point, but just know that there is a, a, a kingdom work that God is doing that is so far bigger and better and grander and more glorious than most of us even dare dream. And I want to encourage you to be a part of that and how you can be a part of it at Salt and Light. Last, our fifth point. We are and we live as Salt and Light in this world so that God will be glorified in us 
and through us. This is verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. It's so interesting because we, we read this, so that they may see your good works. In another place, Jesus teaches, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And we're thinking, well, Jesus, make up your mind. But his point, again, the context, the two different contexts. What he's talking about, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He's talking about don't become prideful in your own works. Don't allow yourself to be puffed up because you do do so much good. The same message is right here. He says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The whole point of, of being salt and light is ultimately so that God will be glorified. So that God will be worshipped by more people tomorrow than He is today. Now, I, I have no doubt that Paul has shared with you John Piper's great quote. Mission exists where worship does not. If people aren't worshipping God, that's a mission field. And so Paul, or, or Jesus is telling us, be salt and be light so that others may see God through you and in you, in how you live your life. And ultimately one day they will come and glorify Him. I just want to leave you with the words of Matthew Henry. He writes this, The glory of God is the great thing at which we must aim in everything we do. Do we seek God's glory in how we live our lives as salt and light? We should. Because that's what God has called us to do. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time where we can come and study your word, Father. Father, being salt and light is a massive calling upon our lives. And so we just pray for your grace. We pray for your mercy. We pray for your love. And so, Father, we pray that we would be strengthened in our faith that we may live out who you have called us to be and who you have made us to be in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father God, we do so so that others may see and know and love and worship you. For your glory is our heart's desire. This we pray in your name. Amen. Now, you do this every week. You pull this out, you roll this, you just leave this. All right. I was thinking, roll it out, but we could do it this way. What a night did those disciples experience. They had just come in to Jerusalem and seen Christ praised and glorified in a way that he had never allowed until that day. When he makes his triumphant, triumphal entry into Jerusalem with people waving the palm branches and throwing their cloaks in the road and he's riding upon the donkey and they're, they're crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna! In the highest. They had never seen Jesus worshipped in that way. And so they are excited. They are impassioned. 
And so then they, there they are in the upper room that night in this intimate setting. So they've had all of the fanfare and the craziness of what's gone on in those few days. And then there's this intimate setting and the room is probably fairly dimly lit. Maybe just a lamp or two up on a stand. And they're reclining at table and tables in those days were low and they would recline on on pillows, you can understand why it was so important for Jesus to wash their feet, not only physically, but metaphorically. And then Jesus begins to talk in the way that they had heard him talk a few times before, but they never quite understood. And in fact, they don't get it until after Christ is dead. So they're there celebrating Passover, this idea of how the the sacrificed lamb and his blood preserved the life of the Jews at the time of the Exodus. The angel of death passes over those homes. And Christ begins to talk about how he is that Passover lamb. How it would be his body and his blood broken and poured out for them that would allow them to retain their lives in the Lord. What a stunning, what a stunning night that must have been for those guys. Just mind-blowing. Spirit-changing. And and we see from the text that they didn't really get it even then. They get it a whole lot more later on. But, But friends, think about that. There you are reclining at table with this man who you have followed through thick and thin for three years. And he takes this bread and he says, this is my body, broken, torn apart for you. And he takes the cup, which was the cup of blessing, And he says, this is my blood. And it will be shed for you. Friends, what, a, what an incredible reality that Christ was teaching them and us. So today as we come and we celebrate in the same way, we do so with the weight of what Christ was teaching us upon our minds. We do so with the the realization that He died upon a cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed for our sins. Not for any sin that He committed. For He was perfect and holy. But for our sins, He hung upon that cross. It was for our sins that He died and that He would one day rise. And so today as we come, this is a celebration of communion. For He is not dead. He is not in a grave somewhere, His bones having long decayed. But He is now in heaven, ruling over His kingdom. And so we celebrate this with joy and with hope. Knowing what He did, knowing what He is doing, and knowing one day what He will do. And so now, as our servers come forward, I will simply invite you 
If you love the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are a member in good standing of a church or are seeking to be a part of a new church, maybe this church, I invite you to the table to come. And these ladies will hold the bread and the cup and you will tear off a piece of bread. For those who have not done this before, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and then take and eat. Then I would simply encourage you to go back to your seats and pray. Pray as together we celebrate the Lord's table.